So if you find sprouts distasteful, it's down to genetics. And that's why as a kid, I had there were sprout wars in the house. My mother said that they, they were a necessary part of my nutrition. I didn't get to see one million years BC with Rakhal Walsh, you know, and, and fighting Tyrannosaurs <laughs> and, and Triceratops because I refused to eat my sprouts. You know? oh. And it was and my mum, I wish she was still alive. I could just say to her, look, mum, it wasn't just me. Genetics. Welcome to Sustainable 273. Welcome yourself all to the penultimate babble ever, or at least for seven and a half years. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast, ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet and why there are still people who are, after all this time, sodding inspiring. Oh, sodding inspiring. And I'm not talking just about you. Who, whom, with whom are we going to be having a natter this time oh now look we decided we didn't want to be too like you know maudlin and introspective about the ending of the babble but it must be said that back in 2015 the first time we spoke to someone like really megastar in this world was when we chatted to chris packham and it was brilliant and in many ways i think it probably helped us chat to lots of other people because we said Mm -hmm. look we've chatted to packham you can come and chat to us too that's very true Um, and he was super generous to do it then when we were a tilly little podcast that no one had ever heard of and he's super generous to do it now uh, when we just sent him a message saying, can you come chat to us again, please? <laughs> and he did, because he's a kind man. So this is our chat to Chris Packham. And, I mean, we reflect on the fact that, unbelievably, it's seven and a half years since we had that rather magnificent day in, in, in the sunshine, when yeah. I think I was absconding from one of the party conferences, if I remember rightly. And we had a <laughs> we had a chat, former employer, it's fine. Uh, for, and we had a chat with Chris and it was all lovely. So we reflect on what has changed since then, uh, both in the wider world, in Chris's life. A lot has gone on there um, and all sorts. Yeah, the best thing about chatting to Chris Packham, apart from the fact that it's Chris Packham, is that you just sort of wind him up and point him at things and he'll talk. And he'll, so he, it's great. <laughs> he, the, the, he gives us his honest opinions about stuff that we ask about and stuff we didn't ask about. And that is brilliant. You will learn all about what he does about trolls and whether they get to him. You will learn about what words he thinks is all right and what his opinion is on swearing. You will learn about his strange photographic hobby and you'll learn all about Michaela Strachan and what she thinks about stuff. Now, just the usual disclaimers. We do work for environment charities, so if you've got any beef with anything me and Dave say, take it up with us directly, not with the people for whom we work, yes? Right, very good. Oh, look, I am chomping at the bit, old son, to find out what it is we just asked him about. So, let's... It's champing, it's champing. The phrase is champing. But there is we it? Go. Yeah. Oh, you know, off your own bat, back is it bat or back bat bat like cricket yeah i think it's not off your own back as in carrying it around yourself which is why i always thought it was no i don't think so i'm not as confident on that one i'm pretty confident on the champing thing okay anyway good well we can't have you champing are you getting on with it i'm champing about getting on with it should we get on with it okay So, Chris, hello and hello from seven and a half years in the future after the last time we spoke to you seven and a half years ago in the past. Oh, my God, how the hell is it seven and a half years? Well, exactly. If you'd have asked me when, because I distinctly remember you uh, asking me to take part, I'd have said, well, obviously pre-COVID, but I'd have said about three years, not seven and a half. Time is flying, I suppose, at the moment. But then we're very busy people with lots of things to do. So, you know, that's the way it works, isn't it, really? It's the way it works. But it is, I don't know, it's worth reflecting on stuff that has changed in that time, I think. Just briefly, uh, Dave? has less hair that's why he's wearing a hat today it's nothing no to do it's cold that's why cold. I'm wearing a hat. uh i have more of myself um i've had a very good 
um, pandemic on that in that regard. Uh, but also, you know, there's been some fairly p- obvious political nonsense that's happened in that time. Uh, we won't talk about that, I don't think. But well, let's talk about quite a few changes for, for you. You have gone, I don't know if this is how you perceive it, but you have gone from, in our view, kind of like very well-known wildlife presenter to something of a national treasure who has spoken out about a range of issues, done lots of different things, not just wildlifey related. You've written a book in which you've said some very racy things about Anna Bergman. Um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you want to repeat those here. but Well, she was a bit of a pin-up fantasy when I was 14, but that was longer than seven and a half years ago. Um, <laughs> sure, enough. yeah. Uh, Fair I, enough. I mean, I wrote that book with no intention of publishing it, if I'm very honest with you. Really? I sat under a bed. for Yeah, I, it was an exercise. I have to, have to have something creative to do. So at the moment, I'm designing uh, all sorts of bizarre graphics so I sit in hotel rooms, on aircraft, in the backs of cars, taxis, you name it. And, um, and and I have to be doing something personally creative. Otherwise, I start to get pretty angsty and not such a nice person. Um, so I have to have a project. And that was my project at the time. I didn't have the capacity to do anything sort of artistic, photographs or, or any of the graphic stuff that I, I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> but I did have the capacity. I had a keyboard and that was it. So I could type. So I, I wrote it and then I put it away. It must have been for a couple of years. And uh, then I met someone who I uh, had known for a long time, and I gave it to her to read. And she said, you know, will you meet me for a coffee? And I said, yeah, yeah, okay. And she said, you must publish this this book, otherwise it's just the waste, you know. And, and, but for me, it wasn't a waste. It was an exercise in creativity that I needed to go through. Um, and I did. And I didn't particularly like it or think it was any good. Anyway, she, she convinced me to send it to a publisher's, which I did. And they seemed to like it. So that's how it came to fruition. It wasn't something, I mean, I went in with a fully fledged manuscript. We did some editing. We made a few changes, um, obviously. But but all the words were on the page when I went into the publisher's office. Hang on a minute. You wrote an entire book just for kicks? Yeah. Wow. I write quite a lot of things just for kicks. I've got a whole collection of short stories, which I hope will never see the light of day, because they are more racy than my imagined relationship with Anna Bergman, age 14. Well, I, I didn't I didn't dare share those pages with Dave because he is a man of delicate disposition and I wasn't sure no, he's going to be able to cope with it. So uh, too old. Yeah, I'm not, I well, perhaps as a leaving present for the babble, you can um, you can send us <laughs> one of those uh, short stories on the condition that we never publish it. I don't know. Once upon a time, there was a lovely little sausage called Baldrick, <laughs> and it lived happily ever after. I, I don't know. For me, I've, I've got to have something weird and wacky going on. I've got to be doing something other than helping other people create things. I, I, if I haven't got that personal outlet, then, as I said, I get pretty frustrated. I'm, I mean, I've just spent the last two weeks taking photographs. Um, I had a couple of jobs uh, taking photographs, but the rest I was sort of doing for myself. And I've got a project at the moment that I'm taking photographs of uh, dead animals, of roadkill. Okay. Um, I don't think we revere, I, you, you know, uh, there's a whole sphere of photography called post-mortem photography, not popular any longer, but it was popular from about the 1850s to the 1930s. Whereby, dead people. Pe- yeah, yeah, you might have seen some of the photographs. But they were they were photographed immediately after their deaths, if it were non-violent, and they were set in positions uh, as if they were sleeping. And sometimes the children were surrounded by flowers and toys, and they were made to look as beautiful as possible. Wow. And and people had the photographs printed, and then they kept them on their mantelpiece. And I, I always found it a little bit morbid. But then I, I you know, I, I stopped one day just outside the house, and I picked up a, uh, a mallard that had been run over on the river, um, and it was so beautiful. And I've, I've got freezers full of, of dead animals. Um, many naturalists have. It's, that sounds a bit weird, but it yes, isn't. We, we pick things up. We okay. look at their anatomy. We, you know particularly when we're younger, we explore them in a way that we can't when we're looking at them through binoculars, obviously. So, um, But I couldn't throw it away. It was so beautiful. It was too good to waste. And, 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 and there was a sort of part of me that there was a definitely a sort of a sense of questioning my grief for something beautiful. Obviously, no relationship with the Mallard, but to, to, for something so beautiful to have been destroyed and to just be thrown away was untenable, rather like, I imagine, that people might have felt about their relatives in the days of post-mortem photography. So I started this project where I've, I, um, I've collected the the carcasses, call them what you like, roadkill, of 12 species of British mammal. And I'm setting them in very picturesque fairy tale uh, settings 
roots, gnarled oh. roots of old trees, beautifully oh. carved rocks on a riverbed for the otters. But I'm making them look like they're asleep. I mean, I'm not trying to disguise the fact they're dead. Isn't that it's impossible, of course? But the <laughs> idea is that, that, you know, there is some degree of important reverence present in the photograph, that these oh. animals that have been wasted because we've run them over uh, are still have some value. And, uh, and that's the sort of purpose of my project. So I'm on that at the moment, driving around the country with, <laughs> with dead animals in the boot of my car, <laughs> finding beautiful locations and taking their photos. So if, if any Babble listeners see a, see a stoat that's come at an unfortunate end, do you want that posted to you or are you all right? Yeah, and I've got the stoat. I'm, 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 I'm fully stoated. <laughs> well, talking, talking of people who enjoy carting dead animals around the countryside you one of the things it seems like you spent a lot of the last seven and a half years doing is making some of those people who do it uh for altogether different reasons quite cross um mm. you know all of the uh the grouse shooting lot i mean i think I, I to be honest i think we probably talked about this a bit in 2015 but certainly it seems to have become a lot more confrontational and you have if i remember rightly had some pretty horrific stuff uh, sent you away. You've had death threats and dead crows left on the gates outside your house. If I, if I've got that right, um, I mean, are you, are you okay? Like, is that that? Yeah, is that that seems horrible. Is that it is? How do, it is how do you gross, deal with it? it? Well, do you know what? I was speaking to a journalist a little while ago when the last incident happened, and um, I said, you know, I should have been suspicious uh, about you know the, the you know. The, something was afoot because I found a, a dead badger thrown by the gate. Um, roadkill. I'm almost certain it was roadkill. Um, but they dumped it in front of my gate so I had to get out and move it before I could come into the house. And I didn't even – it had it, it become such an everyday thing that I didn't tell Charlotte, my partner, or maybe my stepdaughter about it. I didn't even – it just wasn't – you know, it's just like that. And she's, she said to me, Chris, you've got to get – a grip on this because you've normalized something which is utterly unacceptable um the, these sorts of malevolent threats um have become such an everyday part of your life that you, you just you're not even engaging with them as you should any longer and i thought well you're probably right you know you know it's just become it's become that i think the thing is you know that what i and my colleagues are doing is we're asking people to, to change their minds and therefore their practices more rapidly than they are able to. And some of those people, not all of them, some of them will engage in creative dialogue, not as many as I, I would like, unfortunately. A lot of them are probably just across, as you say, but then a small minority of them lash out. And whether that sort of torrents of hate on social media, um, defamatory lies that are perpetrated about again myself and my colleagues you know or or whether it's acts of violence or threats you know manifest threats it's it has become i'm afraid um part of life that's it um so my attitude to it is i see it as part of a process as i say i understand i think largely why people are behaving that way obviously i don't like it but i understand it and that, that i think that's important um and, th and therefore i have an expectation that it will continue because until we put an end to illegal persecution of raptors uh, unsustainable shooting practices the continued use of lead shot in the environment all of these things there's no ambiguity about the fact they are either illegal or they are utterly unsustainable shooting leg kills at least a hundred thousand birds they ingest it whilst they're feeding and, and they die because it's toxic. And we've taken lead out of our paint, our pipes, our petrol. Um, and we've known for 2,000 years that it's a very dangerous substance. And yet the shooting fraternity in this country, not all over the world, in other places they've, they've stopped it, um, continue to rain many tons of lead into the environment every year. Well, I, obviously that's not sustainable. I'm mm. bound to be in a position where I want to counter that and ask them to stop. But people don't like changing their minds. They don't like changing established practices. They're frightened by that. They like the security of things remaining the same. But nothing's remaining the same in our world. In the seven and a half years between our conversations, um, our, our world has cascaded closer to hell in the handcart. And we all know that. We've just gone, you know, we've felt, you know, the cruel grip of climate change ourselves this summer with that heat wave that we had all yeah. over Europe. It did all over the world, of course. We watched those fires burning in Australia and California, Greece uh, and Cyprus. 
Um, and we've seen the floods in, in Bangladesh. You know, we are now witnessing it. And that's something that we weren't doing as regularly seven and a half years ago. So the sense of urgency compels me to, to campaign ever harder, ever longer, and to try and make those campaigns ever more effective. And of course, that means that all the time you're, you're going to be generating resistance from people who aren't looking out the window. You know, they want everything to stay the same, but they, they're not looking out the window and realizing that nothing's the same. We're in deep, deep trouble, and we cannot continue to waste our wildlife by poisoning it with lead shot, or we cannot continue to persecute um, birds of prey illegally. Um, that's not, that's not, it's just not tenable. Uh, 77 hen harriers with satellite tags, so that's a small minority of the actual population which are fitted with the tags, have been killed in the last four years on or near driven wow. grouse moors. You know, that, as I say, that's tip of an iceberg. And this is 2022. This is not 1860. This yeah, is 2022. Yeah. We're a nation of animal lovers. We live in one of the nature, most nature-depleted collections of nations anywhere on the planet. And we're in a global biodiversity crisis. And these people, these criminals, that's what they are, these criminals are still killing these birds. Well, I, I'm afraid that, that it does make me angry. I try to, you know... Uh, effectively change my anger into something which is creative and positive and that is asking for it to stop trying to get it to stop and the same with fox hunting you know uh, fox hunting should not be part and parcel of rural life in in a civilized european country in 2022 it's not acceptable and and and, and also let's be clear about it uh, the, the polls, the last I remember from a couple of years back, indicated that more than 80% of the UK public agreed with me on that. So I'm not, I'm not an extremist maverick. I'm merely representing the mass popular view on that obscene cruelty. So, but yeah, it's, it has become part of life. I, I imagine it will get worse. Um, we're involved in various uh, you know, litigations. We're, as usual, we're challenging government statutory bodies who are not implementing the law. Well, the laws are not adequate. We're asking them to to reform those. Um, it's all hands to the tiller, frankly. You know, this is the last stand for nature, and, and we've got to take that stand. And if it's a fight, then so be it. It will be a fight. Send me as much human excrement. Well, what kind of thing happened as, last as, night? As it sounds like. serious. Death threats of a very serious nature. Really? Yeah. So they can carry on. Against and that, you and your family? Yes. And I will continue to, to do what I want to do. We what did our last episode all about Twitter. And I wanted to just go back to what you were saying about social media. Like, how do you cope with social media nastiness? How much of it do you get? How much of it do you see? Does it affect you? And how do you try and stop it derailing your well-being, I suppose? Um, I, well, I suppose, again, it's a matter of practice. I, I think that when I first was looking at, well, it's just, just, uh, just say Twitter, um, the, the trolls, you know, I mean, I, I immediately realized that I should never reply to these people, never give them any oxygen, because the way that Twitter worked then, I don't know if it, how it works now, no one does. It's just been taken over by Elon. <laughs> yes. It seems to be TBC, going in all I think, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, you know, if you started to reply to them, it brought them to the top of your timeline and it gave them the oxygen they required. Actually, what you, what I would become is a platform for their unpleasant views and comments. So the best thing to do is never reply. I know some people do. I never do. I ignore it. Um, I've discovered that, you know, there are people who are paid to troll me. That's, that's it. Hmm. Um, and they have all sorts of assets ready. Um, and as soon as things happen, they pump all that out. They put out a lot of misinformation. Who's paying them? Well, I imagine some of the um, people who have a, a vested interest in keeping the bad business as usual, basically. Um, and uh, I mean, and they hide. I mean, we've done some quite legal, very legal, obviously, but deep, deep dives into finding out where the money's coming from. Yeah, but. That, that's it without become doing it illegally which obviously i'm never going to do um we can't find out exactly who they are but it, we've got pretty pretty good ideas i suppose but it doesn't matter you know that, that that's they're doing their job at the end of the day they're being paid so you know, you've got to respect that they've got a job to do and that's getting harassed harass unanimous view if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> yeah but you know at sometimes i don't know very occasionally it gets to me um 
There's, I'll tell you one thing. It's the perpetuation of misinformation, which is the really irks me. It, it, just because it's, it's trivial, but it, 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 sometimes it does. So there's this, this, they, they get these stories going, and then they share them amongst themselves until they become truths. That's how it all works, of course. And then they keep it going, keep it going. And if you, if you search back to the, you know, try and find the origin of the misinformation, it's often a, you know, a line in the Telegraph or the Daily Mail or something like that, which is entirely inaccurate, but you're not going to do anything about it. it, it you know, it's, there's no point in complaining about it. It's just get on with it, you know. But they pick up on it and they run it and they run it and they run it and they just keep bringing it out. And, it, and sometimes they just sort of think, oh, for God's sake, grow up and do some research, you know. I have, a, I think my, on occasionally I might have just, Quipped to a couple of people, not the real mega trolls, but the others. You know, before you before you start typing, just do a modicum of research. You know, but um, but on the other hand, I've got to say, but you ought to be fair about this: that social media also gives people like myself an enormous platform for communication, for building communities of like-minded individuals who want to converse, who, who are interested in making progress. Um, so there is a very uh, positive side to social media. And I suppose you've just got to take the rough with the smooth. That's what it comes down to. I, I enjoy the capacity to, you know, to ask people to sign petitions, um, to inform them. I learn a lot myself, of course. I'm invited to participate in other people's campaigns. And I'm, that only reaches me because of, uh, of social media. And sometimes they're very small campaigns, you know, people working in a community trying to save a tree, uh, which is valuable to them. Um, and they say, you know, and I only hear about that on social media. And that gives me the capacity to write. To, I don't know, to whoever, how highways the council and say, you know, can you think twice about that? It's, we need to save every tree at the moment. You know, we live in one of the most deforested countries in Western Europe, 13% of forests. You know, we, we, we need to fight for every tree, particularly you know, nice old ones, which are at the centre of people's communities. And I only know about that because of Twitter. So, yeah, you've got to, you've got to take the rock of the smooth. That's the way I look at it. But yeah, it's, it strikes me that your Twitter feed can be quite joyful as well. Like I see a lot of people sending you delightful pictures of photos of foxes or like, I think there was one this morning of like, you know, a pencil sketch of uh, foxes, which is stunningly yeah. beautiful and, well, we run, and all of that we sort run, of stuff. And... We run something called Fox of the Day. And um, so every day we post a picture that someone has taken, we found on social media, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, and we repost it with our hashtag Fox of the Day. And I decided to do this for a year. So we're, I think we're, we started in about April, and we had a little break um, when the the Queen passed away. Um, so we've got a few days to catch up. But my plan is to post 365 foxes of the day, and people love the foxes, Super. and they love their photographs. And it, you know, and it again, it's about building that community care. We're asking people to think about these animals as being an, an, an important ecological, uh, you know. Uh, species in, in the ecology of the area, but also culturally too. You know, that's the thing. A lot of people love their foxes. You see that in their photographs and the drawings and paintings and pots and everything else that they do. So for me, that's the, that is the positive side. You're absolutely right. That's about celebrating something. And I love that. And people yeah. send me pictures of animal poo and larvae, caterpillars. Well, you love a bit of poo, Chris. Yeah, we need, to talk, you about the, we need to talk to you about the poo. Why am I getting emails about poo calendars off of you? Yeah. Well... <laughs> I, I, again, the project, it was one of those things I needed something to do and I thought I'd I'll, I'll do something quirky. So I collected together uh, 12 photographs that I'd taken of animal feces around the world and, the, and then I had the photographs of the animals and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into the science of, of poo for that species. And the thing is that poo is very valuable to, you know, biologists is there's, there's so much information there. The first thing is that obviously if you find the poo, you know the animal's been there, even if you can't see the animal. Right. So animals that yeah, are yeah. nocturnal or occur at very low densities or are very shy, if you find the poo, you know they're there. So presence That's or absence. How I first knew there were hedgehogs in my back garden. Yeah. Saw, saw, saw poo I didn't recognize yeah. and then uh, looked it up and I was like, That's hedgehog, yeah. that is. That's it. But then you could have, you know, relatively inexpensively, if you were working as a scientist, you could have had that poo um, investigated for its DNA. And then that would have told you about the population of hedgehogs and which, whether it was a male or female, whether it was in breeding condition and so on and so forth. So there's a lot to be learned. The other a very obvious thing we didn't want to skip over is, of course, that poo contains prey remains or food remains. Um, so it gives people the uh, capacity to look at the diet of those animals, again, non-invasively. Otherwise, you've got to catch the animal, pump its stomach, or you've got to watch it feeding or hunting. And that's very difficult to measure quantitatively or qualitatively what, what it's what it's eating um so th there's a lot of good, really good science of poo um 
animals also use it obviously to communicate with each other. Uh, they use it to communicate with other species. They use it to ma manipulate other species and get those species to change their behavior. Um, so I found when I sort of, I've been always been into poo and pellets and those sorts of things. Well, most naturalists are, if I'm honest with you. It's not, it's not such a bizarre thing. Um, anyway, then I sort of thought, well, I'll, I'll make a joke out of this. So I put together the uh, Chris Packham's full of shit calendar 2023. <laughs> and um, each page has a different animal and uh, all the science about its poo. So it's perfect for the child, uh, you know, for the, for the young naturalist, except that some parents I've noticed, um, a, a lady communicated with me last night and she said, I, I, under duress, under duress, I've ordered one of your calendars for my son, who's a very keen young, uh, you know, ecologist. She said, but I don't normally um, subscribe to things with swearing. In them. And if I'm very honest with you, I, I, I don't consider shit as a swear word. I suppose, again, that's because I'm a biologist. We spend so much time talking about shit, looking at shit, picking up shit, analyzing shit, that it's never, it's never been a swear word to me. I wouldn't use the F word or any of those others as with, with young people. But I think, I don't know. Well, I've been proved mistaken anyway. No, I, I can confirm it has passed the babble swear filter, all right? We did an interview about a few weeks ago with a guy who had a film called Shit Save the World, and he only realised once he'd made the film called Shit Save the World that he'd have to asterisk out the shit, which meant you couldn't find it anywhere, which is a bit of a shame. To see, searching for it on Netflix <laughs> reveals absolutely nothing, so not sure how well that film's doing. It's weird, isn't it, how we are so um, reactive to things like that? I, I read a book once called, I think it was called Dirty English. Yes, I've um, read and that. It was, yeah. Have you read that? Yeah, yeah it's fascinating, yeah. isn't yeah. it? History how of swearing. Sort of, yeah, how some words are innocuous and then they become very offensive and then they drop out of fashion, basically. Um, and there were some things that we simply wouldn't say now that we, that we said when we were young people and they were everyday part of our parlance. And now they are absolutely verboten, and, and rightly so in some cases. But... I always said to, to Megan when she was young, um, you know, th there's, there's no such thing as bad language. There's only, you know, language used badly. So I said to her, right. if you drop, yeah, if you drop an anvil on your foot, we've never had an anvil. Anvil, we, I mean, we, I, <laughs> you know, they weren't part of it. The, Occupational hazard, yeah. was it? <laughs> but if you did drop an anvil on your foot, then you could use the F word because that would be appropriate to say that. What about now? But can I use it now? Yeah. Can I use it now? Yes, you can use it now. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Standing there with an anvil on your foot. <laughs> so, um, speaking of words, I want to ask you a thing. At the moment, going on in Montreal, which is in Canada, is a big old meeting about nature. Um, which we haven't really covered on here much, and we, you know we're out of time. We won't cover it now. What nature? But it's, it's like the no, we've done nature. We haven't done the meeting. It's like the climate change cop, but it's talking about nature. And one of the things they're talking about is what words should be used to describe the ambition for nature. And there's this thing going around. Have you heard about this? That they're, they're squabbling all these governments over whether to commit to being nature positive by 2050. And I wondered what you made of that phrase and that ambition. Well, do you know. I think two things, really, because I do think we do have to be careful with our vernacular because we do use it quite lazily. And again, I've written about this. So one of the one of the things that we commonly do as conservationists, particularly in the UK, is that we speak about loss. So we say we've lost, you know, 93 percent of our turtle doves since 1975. Lost them. What, what have we done? We've put them down and forgotten where they are. Sort of, <laughs> Mis I've mislaid my turf. Yeah, birds. we've mislaid yeah. like millions <laughs> of birds, basically. That's careless, isn't it, really? So what it, what it is, actually, is we've destroyed them. Um, but there is this softening where we talk about loss. And then the other thing is we, we talk about game birds. And the prefix game so it gives people the capacity to think it's okay to shoot them. So we have birds which are in critical decline in the UK, snipe and woodcock. But because they are game birds, yeah. most people think, well, that's okay, we can carry on killing those. It doesn't matter that they're red-listed and declining very rapidly because well, they're game birds. See also so, farm animals, right? That's another example. Yeah. Right, isn't it? That's another one. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with you. So I do think we are lazy with our vernacular and we need to look at it. And I have, again, I've written about this and I've complained about it. So I do think that sometimes 
you know, it, as we were just saying, you know, about the word, the word shit, how some people perceive it as offensive and others is part of our everyday language, not as a swear word, but merely as a description of what we're looking at. Um, <clears throat> so I do think, yes, it is important. However, however, um, in the, under the circumstances at COP15, there are more important things, I think. You know, as I said, you know, we are in the last, you know, days of being able to do anything about this biodiversity loss. And we know, you know, what we need to do to address it. So I would suggest that rather than get pedantic about semantic, um, we actually concentrate on, you know, putting in place the protocols to very rapidly, urgently and effectively make the transitions that we need to, to secure a, a, a healthy global ecology, basically. Um, so maybe I'm being a little bit, I don't know. Uh, hypocritical there because I do think uh, we've got to be careful with our language and I, I refuse to say loss I don't I won't say it you know we haven't lost them we've destroyed them or we've destroyed their habitat that's the bottom line it, we haven't lost them it's down to us and then people say you know this is uh, uh, you know a, a mass extinction event um, as if it's nothing to do nothing to do with us whatsoever this this whole it's very thing very passive been, isn't it this yeah, extinction is just sort of happening and yeah no one's doing the extincting. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, we've got to be sort of, again, it's a mass extermination event. That's what it is, because we're exterminating that life. It's not just disappearing like with, for no reason, ethereally. It's down to us. There's no ambiguity about it. We know that. So it's, it's an extermination event. And again, I, so again I, I do try to sort of change those, those things. Um, and it's like the use of field sports, you know, the, the, the word sport. For me, there's nothing sporting about killing an animal, a defenseless animal that's easy to kill. Um, that's, that's not a sport. Sport, if you is kicking balls and using bats and rackets and stuff like that. But again, so it, it legitimizes it something because there are so many other sports. So field sports, that's got to be okay because they're just sports that are played in fields. This is not true. But there we are. So, and, and again, others use their, that language against people like myself. So rather than, you know, I would describe myself as a conservationist, an environmentalist, certainly an activist. Um, but the field sports fraternity will bill me and in, in print, in, in, in newspaper print, as an animal rights activist um, because, or an animal rights extremist. Um, and I think, again, it is, it is important to recognise what they're doing there because they're, obviously they're drawing upon the early days of um, some of the animal rights extremism and activism that was taking place, which wasn't quite so well thought through, it was violent, and some parts of it were very unpleasant. So they're drawing on a sort of a, a deep-rooted um, manifestation of, of a, a stereotype and they're trying to keep that alive by describing myself and yeah. my colleagues as animal rights extremists. We're not animal rights extremists at all. We're conservationists, ecologists, and environmentalists. That's right, the really wild show. And a big welcome from Nick. Chris and myself to this, the very first in a brand new series of natural history programmes from Bristol. Talking to conservationists, I want to talk a little bit about your time on telly, uh, which you spend a lot of time uh, with other conservationists on Spring Watch and, and, and others. But I mean, I'm wondering, is it still fun, telly? Is it is it something you love? Is it is it, I presume it's changing all the time? Is it change for the better or the worse is it harder to do interesting new great stuff or or what like how do you how do you feel about it all um well i, I spend quite a bit of my time working for the bbc um the bbc's funding has been significantly reduced so it's harder economically but it's not harder in terms of you know, the subjects and and the stories that we have to tell you know science progresses and basically what we're doing is you know in the type of television that i do largely is report you know new fascinating uh you know science uh, or, or we're developing an affinity with our audience between that and, and our subjects we want them to essentially want them to engage with be interested in and and end up loving life so that outside of television you know we can draw upon that that passion that they might have manifest uh to to to, to get them to be more conservation minded 
So there's a, a, it's very much a vocational part of that for me. And I've just been working on a, a program, uh, a fascinating program about the history of the Earth from a biological perspective, largely a biological perspective. So we get past the sort of planet building thing quite quickly, and we then start to look at how life has impacted significantly on the ocean, the atmosphere, the climate, so on and so forth. Um, and a lot of that we couldn't have done 10 years ago because we didn't know um, you know, mm. a, a, about those phenomena 10 years ago. So, yeah, as the science rolls on, and, and mm. there's always more stories to tell, some of them very exciting. And that, for me, is really enjoyable. I, I think there's a selfish element in that I'm very fortunate. My life is, has been a learning experience. So I still get to spend a lot of time either reading or meeting face-to-face uh, researchers who tell me remarkable things that they've discovered. And that is, for, for mm. me, you know, it's like, every day at work is like reading a copy of the new scientist you know it's it's it's, it's fascinating so that's i find that personally stimulating i love learning new things uh, and i like communicating to other people to give them a sense of i suppose in some way but not in a worthy way um in, importance you know it's all about as i said you know manifesting that and engendering that respect for life and and our, and our environment uh, but yeah, the money, the, 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 the smaller budgets can be problematic. We just, we all have to work longer, harder hours. We have to multitask. Um, so although I'm the presenter in some of those programs, I'm also the one that carries the tripod and carries the battery box and helps unload oh, the vehicle. Really? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I always imagined you, you're, you're carried on some sort of sedan <laughs> with, you know, <laughs> a kind of. Oh caravan of lackeys yeah. uh, attending to every need is <laughs> well, you saying it's not yeah, no it's not me um yeah. so no we we and, and you know i mean i know some people don't do that but for me it's very much part and parcel i want to be you know as being professional in my position um i want to be a pleasure to work with an effective pleasure to work with i need to be optimal i need to make sure that i can do the right thing at the right time that people want so i never drink if i'm working alcohol um i'm, I'm always uh, punctual um, I'm never late. Uh, if I'm late, it's like almost suicidal. Um, and then, you know, I'm the guy at the airport whilst people are waiting for the bags. I'm, I'm getting the coffees, you know. So, Oli, are you listening? Oh, there are a lot. There is a lot of things you could be learning here from Chris. <laughs> well, it's a bit I, like now. Know, I grant you, a movement. A movement needs all types of personality, isn't it? And 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 people like me as well. <laughs> the, what is punctuality if some people are not punctual? <laughs> it only makes sense relative to the late people. I never waited for anyone who was late more than 10 minutes in my life. I'd say 15. 15 right. No, 10. I think we should move on swiftly from uh, from this before it gets a bit uh, bad for me. Um, but I did, I wanted to uh, just ask you one more thing about telly. Talking of small budgets and discovering new things... I was up very late last uh, the other night and saw a programme about the Hacienda Club, which featured a clip from a programme I'd never heard of before called The Hitman and Her, which was a music show went out in the late 80s, early 90s, presented by Pete Waterman and Michaela Strachan. That's right. How did I not know about this? And wh- why is, you know, Michaela Strachan presenting from the depths of an extremely jolly, to be euphemistic, uh, Hacienda yeah. crowd, not something which is uh, continuing to be on our on our screens. No, I know. Um, so I went, actually, uh, because obviously I'd met her prior to that. Michaela okay, and I are great mates. Time to pass the mic. Nap, we've got a few people down here in the bar. Do you want to know what to do? Five, four, three, two, one, and you shout. Pass the mic! Flipping useless. That's okay, right. I've known her longer than anyone else, uh, apart from my sister, that I still see at this point in time. I'm not, not, I don't really maintain long-term friendships and that sort of thing. It's not part of my personality. But I, but I have with Michaela. We continue to work together. We enjoy each other's company and we understand each other very well. So while she was doing that program, after I'd met her doing The Really Wild Show, she said, you must come to one of these Hitman and Her things. And I was like, you know, anyway, so... I did go to one. It wasn't at the Hacienda. I can't remember where it was, actually, but it, I did everything to expunge the memory of it from my mind. It was such a horrendous <laughs> experience because the last place you really want to get a camera out is in a nightclub full of drunken revelers. You, you, it's so weird to watch it. Yeah, it's so weird. A magnet for madness. Um, 
Anyway, I went along. I met Pete Waterman and talked to him about trains. He was massively into steam trains, so I managed to turn that into a learning experience. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, McKay's a very a talented broadcaster, and she's very, you know she she came from an entertainment background. She trained as a dancer, um, and then she started working with Timmy Mallet. I don't, I'm, I won't, you know, get the chronology entirely right for her, on her CV. Okay, here's the mallet, and don't forget it's a word association. You mustn't pause, mustn't hesitate, bashing her head like this, or like this. One of the most brutal losers looking at each other go bleh. Uh, but then she came to the Willie Wild show. And one of the things that McCann did used to do, she doesn't do it any longer, I'm very pleased to say, is that she would always belittle her, you know, her ability to present wildlife programs, given that she didn't have a zoology degree like I've got. But the thing was that she'd been interested in wildlife all of her life. She's very compassionate. She, you know, she's very, um, you know, keen on the preservation of life and, and so forth. She's a great broadcaster. And during the time that she's been making wildlife programs, she's, learned more than most people with zoology degrees about it anyway so that insecurity i'm pleased to say has has faded you know recently and uh, yeah she's a very knowledgeable knowledgeable you know biologist i would say So it's Christmas. Happy Christmas, Chris. Thank you. Um, in uh, we, we've we've dealt with some big topics in here, but one of the things that's happened in the last seven and a half years, I reckon, is that there's people seem to be talking about the planet and saving it more, and it seems like it feels to me that there's more of an appetite for fixing stuff than there was a year ago. Is that just because we read the Guardian, and that's what the Guardian says? Or do you think, because you'll hear from everyone, that something has changed in the debate? Please say yes. <laughs> I think things have changed, and I think they were moving very positively pre-COVID. I think in 2019, Extinction Rebellion were on the streets of London, um, and basically their protests were like festivals. You know, we, I spent quite a bit of time in, in London at that time with them uh, protesting, but it was a very jolly atmosphere. The relationships with the police were fantastic, if you want to know. Um, but of course, it, it, then COVID derailed that type of protest because it was mass protest. It was about large numbers of people coming together and that you can't do that with a pandemic. So Megan and I had put together a wildlife rebellion and we were going to do sort of like entry level activism. And we'd come up with like four campaigns to run in 2020 um, alongside Extinction Rebellion. But we were going to focus very much on wildlife and, and not so much on the climate. And uh, we got all the campaigns together. We'd done all the artwork. We knew exactly what we were going to do. Um, and then we just couldn't run it. I mean, yeah. we, simply because they would have been entirely inappropriate. So I'm afraid to say I do think that COVID, very unfortunately, derailed some of the momentum when it came to those climate protests. There was, there's no question about that. Fridays for Future, all of those you know, young yeah. people doing things. It couldn't continue. And post-COVID, you know, we've gone from one catastrophe to another, um, economic, whatever, wars in Ukraine. Um, and it's therefore, it's been difficult to get people to refocus on the biggest issue of all, which, uh, you know, it's hard to say when there are people who can't afford to eat, they're going to food banks. It's hard to say when people can't afford to heat their houses. It's hard to say when we're not paying our nurses properly, our railway workers properly, our teachers, but we're not paying any of those, you know, public servants properly. Um, but the biggest issue is the climate because we could pay all of those people as much as they wanted. But if there's no future for them, then what's the cost, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do think, unfortunately, those sorts of distractions um, have taken our eye off the, of the biggest picture of, of all. And I've, but, you know, I, I've already said it, you know, it's very hard, you know, saying to someone, you know, who is on, uh, you know, below living wage, getting food from a food bank, working, trying to raise a family, that, you know, it would be better if you ate less meat for the environment is a tough call, you know. It's a tough call, but but the... The support, it might be relatively soft support, but the support seems to be maintaining its levels and growing. Like, the, you know, the, all of the polling says that 
people still, despite everything you just said, people still want much faster action on climate from politicians. There is, Dave, you posted this the other day on your on your socials. There is a very small but but noticeable um, upward trend in a uh, uh, number of people who are prepared to give up eating as much meat. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not massive, but meat and dairy, you know, is is being slowly stigmatised despite it all. We've seen. I mean, this is the thing I wanted to ask you about, like the the reintroduction of. So many species in the UK, I don't know about elsewhere, but, you know, since we last spoke, like beavers are now back, basically, you know, and you're not allowed to shoot them if you're an angry Scottish uh, farmer. Uh, Lots of other species are are back. So I don't know. I'm just, (laughs) I'm clutching at like a desperate need to to be positive, but it feels like there are some good things. I don't don't think you're clutching. I mean, I think what you're doing is you're drawing examples of uh, of the way that we can very rapidly actually restore and repair and, and reinstate nature. You know, we've got ospreys breeding in the south of England for the first time in you know right. uh, more yeah. than two hundred years. We've got sea eagles, which could next year breed for the first time for more than two hundred years in the south of England. I mean, if you'd have said that to me when I was fourteen, and I'm living pretty close to where I grew up, um, I would either burst with excitement or just simply not believed you. So, you know, there is no ambiguity about the fact that we have a toolkit for natural survival and for our planet's survival. But, you know, the, so we can do all those little things, and those are perfect examples of us being able to do them, but we're not doing them broadly enough, rapidly enough. Um, and there are some bigger issues that, again, you know, it doesn't matter how many ospreys we reintroduce into the south of England if the climate goes to hell, and, you know, we, they're all still going to die, and, and us with them. We are in the, we are gripped, and I, I don't want to get into you know sort of politics because I'm an environmentalist. But they, 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 there is a, obviously an overlap. If we yeah, continue yeah. to burn fossil fuels, if we continue to explore uh, for more fossil fuels to exploit, we're doomed. That's it. That there, there is no question. If we continue to eat as much meat globally as we do now, then there will be nowhere for, for wildlife to live. And while we are dependent on those ecosystem services, Earth. You know, we take our food from the soil. The soil is not inert. It's full of bacteria and organisms which get those plants, our food, to grow. And without it, we're doomed. The, the problem is that we're up against very powerful vested interests that are doing everything they can to resist change. And they, they very cleverly taken control of mainstream media. I mean, there are a couple of very prominent you know, national newspapers in the UK who are clearly you know, have, a, have an agenda to keep business as usual when it comes to the climate. And that's very dangerous because they have a wide readership. And, and people like myself are, are constantly trying to combat the misinformation, the very, very dangerous, the genocidal information that these these uh, papers are pushing out to a large number of people who, who read it and believe it. So, you know, our fight at the moment is very much against uh, very rich uh, people with vested interest in, in keeping, I suppose, some aspects of capitalism uh, and growth, you know. And growth means more consumption. Uh, you know, it's, it, growth should be the dirty word. It, it, it's... You know, sustainable, sustain, sustainability should be the key word, you know, or recovery, not growth. We cannot continue to exploit resources that are not infinite. We're on one tiny, very beautiful planet, the only place we know in, in, in the universe that there is life. Um, and we're wrecking it. And, and, and frankly, I find that unconscionable because we are such a smart, adaptable, intelligent, resourceful, clever species. What are we doing? What are we doing? But then again, you know, we can think that on a daily basis. We look at the, just to pick an example, the cabinet of the UK government, although we could pick cabinets of governments all over the world. And, and you look at the makeup of that and you look at, at the people who are there and, and then you ask, why are they there and what are they doing? And what are their qualifications for being able to do that job? And all of those things are questionable. And yet they, they, the system persists. And that is currently endangering life on earth including our own yeah it's totally gone off the rails since season 2016 i know but i want to see how it ends definitely feels like they're wrapping it up any day now i think it's um 
if you want some sort of predictions for the next seven and a half years. I'm not sure. We'll come back. We'll come back in seven and a half years. We'll resurrect the podcast and we'll see how we get on okay. these. If there is well, a seven I, and a half years to come back to, of course. Yes. Well, there we are. I, I think that it will be very difficult for the climate movement if we embrace all of those things. Um, at the moment, you know, the underlying premise is nonviolent direct action. And the parallels are drawn between the civil rights movement and the suffragettes and so on and so forth. But if you look into it more, more, more detail, if you look into those protests, past protests with more detail, you'll see there actually was quite a lot of violence. And, and I think that, you know, I think we will have to increase our threat. I think blocking roads, you know, is something which generates a nuisance. And it makes people think that's, you know, throwing, throwing soup on, on paintings gets global news coverage, makes people think, why do young people, intelligent, bright, Young people get up in the morning, go and throw, you know, soup over uh, a very valuable painting. They're doing it to draw attention to the fact that they're they're terrified because they know that their lives and their future is, you know, significantly endangered. That's what it is. So when people, you know, say to me, oh, I don't know how you can support Just Stop Oil, I, I say, well, rather than criticise their, their methods, why don't you at the outset think what's their motive, you know, you can sit there yeah. in, your, in your gas-guzzling SUV moaning about the fact you're going to be 20 minutes late home because someone has glued themselves to the road. But why don't you ask yourself why? I mean, that, okay, maybe it's a science thing because, you know, when I see a caterpillar doing something, if I see a bird doing something, you know, my first question is why is it doing that? So my first question would be looking at those Just Stop Oil protesters is why are they doing that? These are not – yes, they may well be rebels, but they're not idiots. They're not throwing bricks. They're pass, doing passive things to make you think. So why not think about what motivates them? That, that's, you know, and I do support Just Stop Oil, and I will continue to do so. However, what I fear, and I do fear this, is that the nonviolent direct action, those passive things that they're doing where no one's harmed, no property's harmed. I mean, let's face it, the painting wasn't harmed. I think they've got a 250 bill, pound bill for cleaning the frame. So that, let's be clear, they're not damaging things, but historically if you look at the record you know i think that very sadly i i I do think that we're going to have to get to the point that we will have to stop the flow not ask people to stop the flow we will have to stop the flow of consumption and we will have to stop fossil fuel use and that means things will will turn violent and historically that's what's happened and it's it's a shame because we should be able to, if we had the right people in, in decision-making positions, then we would never get that far. But we don't have the right people. We, we've actually got the wrong people in, in a very big way. And, and, and that's why I think that we are destined for di- very direct action from basically environmentalists who, who have a greater understanding of the urgency to, to protect our planet. So I think by seven and a half years' time, very sadly, because I'm a, very much a pacifist and I don't like destroying things. I've never been up for vandalism of any kind. I always like to try and solve problems through creative dialogue and compromise. But I, I, it's not working. That's the bottom line. I think we'll have to up the stakes. Up the stakes. <clears throat> I was on the beach this morning walking the dogs. I took them to a place I don't normally go. Uh, it was very early, frosty. It was quite nice. Um, apart from the fact that I was limping because I fell over on the ice yesterday. Apart from the limp, it was a lovely morning, and I stood beneath two giant uh, metal structures, uh, <clears throat> and on them it said gas pipeline. And they were coming from a refinery, which is very close to where I live, and they, they were clearly going out under the sea. I was at the, on the beach, as I say. And I just sort of thought, they're just, they're just pumping that gas, and, and they're using that fossil fuel. Um, what would happen if I, you know, stopped that, that gas from flowing? What message would that send more of a, a message to these people than throwing soup over a painting? And now, thank you very much, Chris, for coming on here. All, all, the, all the very, very best. Um, very quickly, sprouts, yes or no? 
Well, no, but then you know why. It's a genetical thing. There's a gene that codes for an enzyme in your that becomes a part of a protein in your saliva. So if you find sprouts distasteful, it's down to genetics. And that's why as a kid, I had there were sprout wars in the house. My mother said that they, they were a necessary part of my nutrition. I didn't get to see one million years BC with Rakhal Welsh, you know, and, and fighting... <laughs> Tyrannosaurs and, and Triceratops because I refused to eat my Strouds. You know? oh. And that was and my mum, I wish she was still alive. I could just say to her, Look, mum, it wasn't just me. It was genetics. So if this Christmas, if you are if you don't like sprouts and you're being guilted into have them, you want to talk about oppression. You're being oppressed. So there yes, you are. Yes, you are. Particularly right. those young people sat at the dinner table with their parents pointing or prodding those sprouts with their fork, saying, Eat this up, you're not getting down until you've eaten all of your veg. They're just fairy cabbages. That's what my mum said to my brother. She gave up by the time I came round, but that's what she said to him. They're just fairy cabbages. Uh, talking of oppression, um, I've been oppressed recently on this podcast for admitting that I quite like Simply Red. Um, oh, boy. Can I continue okay? the oppression? Yes, please do. Please might. do. If you could have a final that's word on this matter, oh, that no, would be great. No, they will not be on my Christmas hit list, I can tell you. No. <laughs> no. And I could tell I'm you... I think they're my favourite band. A, I once shared a taxi with Boy George and Mick Hucknall. Well, yeah, I know. Well, should we save that for seven and a half years' time? Otherwise, I'll be in court. (laughs) (laughs) One of them, one of them was a very, very nice person. Uh, The other one wasn't. Well, that cliffhanger. I I think I can make an educated guess. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for coming back on. Please keep up the the, the good work. We know you will. Um, Thank you, everyone. Everyone loves you. Thanks for everything. Thanks for everything that you've been doing. I mean, again, it's about communication. And what, one thing that we have to admit is that uh, over the seven and a half years and, and the time that we've been speaking about these things, uh, we have become better at communicating. And whether that's social media, whether it's podcasts, whether it's any of those sorts of things, it's about spreading information, proper information, facts, truths, uh, and, and, and making sure that they're dissemin- disseminated in a palatable way so that people can take them on board. And ultimately, that provides them with an opportunity to do the singly most important thing that we've all got to do which is and we've discussed this which is change change our minds we don't change our minds at this point well we can kiss christmas goodbye hey you've got a week to change your mind everyone (laughs) not in a shy way oh no oh no not me I did it my way. Right, that is just about it for another episode of Babel. Thank you very, very, very much, very Chris, much. for coming on the Babel twice, coming on the first time, coming on this time, and just, as Dave says, being inspiring uh, and kind and fun. Thank you, Dave being all those things to a slight i'd say about 10 to 20 percent less than chris packham which is still pretty good i'll take it i'll take it yeah. that's fine that's fine i'll take top end of the championship that's fine <laughs> it's your yeah, natural well thank you too i'll i'll be and look that was our last interview at least in this incarnation of Babel. who knows what the future might bring but uh it's been a pleasure it's been a delight so thank you very much and i'm looking forward to our final episode which is me and you in the ice cold Babel shed doing christmas stuff so that'll be coming out around about christmas yes Bring your ukulele. Yes. Uh, thank you as ever to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends, and ends the podcast, him. and to Arthur Stovall for the Didn't artwork. Told him either. No, um, really will pass on the message <laughs> soon. Uh, thank you, Arthur, for the artwork, which is all over our stuff, including on our T-shirts. Let's be honest: if you order anything now, it isn't going to arrive for Christmas. But you might give yourself a nice Burns Night present. So go to our website, wobblywobblywobbly.sustainabble.fish. Click on merch, order 17 t-shirts. Very good. We didn't even talk about with Chris my proudest moment, I think, in my entire life when his amazing documentary about his life with Asperger's, we didn't talk about that at all because it talks about other stuff. When that was on the telly about four years ago, uh, cut to Chris Packer walking past his fridge and on his fridge is the babble magnet that we got him when we went to see him first time. I couldn't see it in the background of this one, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I also like the fact that Chris Packham agrees with me that you are wrong to get all excited about the reintroduction of one field mouse whilst all the other fields are being covered in concrete. 
Well, it's hardly surprising, is it? This is the man who, I mean, the whole reason we initially got in touch with Chris Backham was because he famously said he would eat the last panda if it meant that people started uh, oh, yeah. re- reprioritizing. Did he, did he do that their... in the end? <laughs> no, I believe there's still more than one left. I think his, right. his promise was that when it comes to there only being one, then he'll eat it just so that people uh, reprioritize their conservation efforts. I'm not. That was a long time ago. I think he said that in 2009. I don't know if he still believes that. Don't sue me, Chris. Sorry, sorry. Now, listen, uh, thank you so much to everyone who has ever given us money on Patreon. We're not asking for more ongoing commitments, obviously, because we're about to stop. But there have been some people who have taken this chance to give us a little donation to say thank you for all the years of babbling. The babble has never really paid its way. So if you've ever thought, oh, I'd love to give Dave and Ol a bit of money, now, as in right now, would be a good time <laughs> to do that. Go to www.patreon.com slash sustainababble. Or failing that, you can PayPal us on a one-off donation to hello at sustainababble.fish. What? You break yeah. that out after 273 episodes. Yeah, I forgot. Goodness. That was a thing you could always have done. I just forgot to tell people. Sorry. Super. That yeah. might be why we've never paid our way. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to email us or any of that lot, I mean, it's a bit late to do anything constructive, but we'll keep looking. Hello at sustainababble.fish. Uh, you can tweet us if we're still allowed on Twitter uh, at the Babble Wagon. Uh, I think Facebook still exists. Try that. Search for Facebook yeah. for Sustainable. And uh, sorry to Steve, who, who sent us a very fair-minded uh, reply to our ill-informed rants about the Mastodons. Um, yeah, well, well, no, I think you know. I, I think other opinions are available about whether or not Mastodon is complicated and worth going on. Let's just that's leave it true. There, shall we? That's true. Right, I've... good. I'll. I shall see you next time for the last time. Until then, I'll be in keep warm, and I'll see you in the babble shed imminently. Bye. 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 many of these to go hey all i was going to give you a joke about white sugar oh but they're fairly common there's quite a lot of those so instead i thought i might give you a joke about brown sugar demerara <laughs>